This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. He was born Mick Foley on Long Island, New York. His manifestations as Dude Love and Cactus Jack are infamous. But none are more deranged than mankind. Undertaker in a very precarious position. And apparently Hell in a Cell match is officially underway in the most god-awful of locations. What's going to happen here? Undertaker fighting back. He's fighting back. They're right above us, folks. And I don't like it a damn bit. Oh, my God. Look out. Oh, my God. The God Almighty. The God Almighty. They killed him. As God is my witness, he is broken in half. King of the Ring, June 28th, 1998. The Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. Hell in a Cell. This is the third Hell in a Cell match ever. The second real one, after the legendary Shawn Michaels Undertaker match at In Your House, Bad Blood, see episode 10. The second one was a tag team match on an episode of Raw that had Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin against Mankind and Kane. But as far as real Hell in a Cell matches go, this was situated squarely in the shadow of the first Undertaker-Michaels bout. And the pressure to live up to its standard, at least in the minds of the competitors, was off the charts. Going in, this match already had some strikes against it. For one thing, The Undertaker had a messed up ankle, so his mobility was severely limited. And for another thing, there was basically no build, no hype for this match. The original plan had been Foley versus Austin for the World Championship inside the cell, but those two guys had fought on the previous two pay-per-views, and WWE decided to mix things up rather than position Foley as a challenger for a third straight time. They put Austin in the main event against Kane and decided on Foley Undertaker for the cell match, making this their seventh pay-per-view encounter, which doesn't really make this one feel particularly fresh. The gimmick here though is that it was inside Hell in a Cell and thus their nominal final showdown. The stakes were artificially elevated by the cage, but the pressure was still real. In the words of Bruce Pritchard, Foley's mindset was, how the fuck do I top what Undertaker did with Shawn Michaels? To prepare for the match, Foley watched Taker Michaels with his close friend and on-screen rival, Terry Funk, just looking for any sliver of an opportunity to one-up the original. Finally, Funk said, start the match on top of the cage. He was joking, probably. You know, just start on top and have him throw you off, ha ha. And then Foley said, yeah, then I can climb back up and he can throw me off again, ha <laughs> ha. It's ridiculous. It's impossible. 
But at some point, this impossibility settled into Foley's head as the only path forward. Or, I guess, downward. Because starting the match on top of the cell is a cool idea, a great visual. But the question it raises is obvious. If you start on the top, well, where do you go from there? The answer, I guess, is obvious too. You go down. So Foley tried to pitch the idea to The Undertaker, but he was repeatedly shot down. Taker wanted no part in it. After saying no over and over again, according to Foley's first fantastic book, Taker finally asked, why are you so intent on killing yourself up there? And Foley answered, because I'm afraid the match is going to stink. You can't walk, and let's face it, I don't have any heat. We've got a heck of a legacy to live up to, and I don't want this match to ruin it. If we start out hot enough, we make the people think we had one hell of a match, even if we didn't. It was self-sacrifice at the altar of history and fan service. In a general sense, this is the job description. To give the fans something they've never seen before. To send them home talking about your match. Any wrestler would tell you that. But what happened in the Hell in a Cell match at King of the Ring 1998 was something else entirely. It was, well, real. Nothing I've told you so far about this match is about the storylines. See, here, in this match, for the purposes of this conversation, they don't matter. There was almost no traditional build-up to the match. Everything you hear about the lead-up to it is what happened off-camera, what happened in real life. Because unlike in previous episodes, the on-screen backstory here doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters are the two people. People. They're in the ring, or rather, in the cage. Or, sorry, rather, on top of the cage. Or, rather, in the air. The abstract 20-foot space between the top of the cage and the hard cement floor. And then, on the floor, pieces of table all around him. Mick Foley's broken body is what matters. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the attitude era. I'm David Shoemaker. Mankind with a steel chair on top of the cell. Wait a minute. Do you, do you think he's daring The Undertaker to start this match up there? That's I where the last one we saw ended. If so, I don't think that Mankind will have to ask twice. are preparing to endure is inhuman. There's a third person inseparable from this story. Not the guy who plummeted to his near death by falling off a cage, and not the guy who tossed him off. I'm talking about the guy who made the call. The guy who explained or narrated the tragedy as it was unfolding. The voice of WWE's Attitude Era, announcer Jim Ross. I called JR and asked him how much he knew about what to expect in the ring that night, whether he knew their plans. Well, I didn't know anything as far as the finish was concerned. I assumed that the Undertaker was going to go over. That made sense. But sometimes in pro wrestling, things that make sense aren't always what gets done. So I was open-minded, but I didn't have any preconceived notions. I had no prior conversations. I didn't talk to Taker or to Mick about the uh, match. So. Everything I saw 
I was seeing for the first time and without being preconditioned. You know why, like, like I know you've, you've been asked that question before, but you get why someone who didn't know wrestling or didn't know your job would be surprised to hear that answer, right? They might. Yeah, they might. They think we know everything. And I've always preferred to work without having too much information. I felt like that I would react more naturally and more organically if I wasn't too overloaded with advanced information. I don't need to know the, the endings. I just don't think it helps me. And I think I can react more organically and more naturally by not knowing. The least I knew about it, the better off I thought I was going to be. So what you heard on that night was just a natural reaction. It was just how I felt at that moment, uh, watching it on television or watching on my monitor more specifically. Yeah, but that's always been my style. I, I equate it to calling a ball game, a legitimate mainstream sports game where you're not preconditioned. You call the game as you see it, as you feel it. And that's kind of what I did on that one. Ross had no idea what he was about to see. None of us did. Obviously, I didn't. I had no idea that Foley was going to go off the top of the cell. I didn't even think about that being an option. I, I know that they got Mick and the Taker got close to the edge, but I didn't think. Surely not. You got to be kidding, you know, that type of thing. They're very close to the edge, and there's just nothing around them that would protect them. There's no way to protect yourself from that bump if it happens. And lo and behold, it happens. In the history of pro wrestling, there's no figure or very few figures like Jim Ross, good old JR. When he started out in the wrestling business, he did some of everything. He was a referee, he swept the floors, he helped out in the office, but his calling was behind the microphone. He's worked in other legitimate sports too, most notably for the Atlanta Falcons of the NFL and also the XFL, but he's known as a wrestling announcer and probably the best that ever did it. I think he's the best. But wrestling is so different, so unique. It's almost impossible to compare it to other play-by-play -play gigs. So to get some sort of frame of reference, I wanted to reach out to somebody who calls those quote-unquote legitimate, those so-called traditional sports for a living. I'm Sean Grandy, the longtime voice of the Boston Celtics and a much longer lifelong fan of the art of professional wrestling and the art of play-by-play. -play. Just not wrestling specific, but uh, a play-by-play -play guy. What is the job description? When the light goes on, what is your job for the next two and a half hours? Captioning the pictures. If you're doing TV, your job is to caption the pictures in real time. Your job is to do the best you can do while people will have a lifetime to write their own version of the history. You get one shot at it. You have to do it live. So it requires an extraordinary amount of skill and preparation and being connected to the moment and in the moment to try to do in real time what the rest of us are doing here in, in podcasts and conversations years later. When you, both as a fan and as an announcer, think of the Hell in a Cell match between Mankind, Mick Foley, and The Undertaker. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I think of two people who I've gotten to know so well later in life. You know, Mick and, and Jim Ross, who become friends, an important part of my life. At a time, I didn't know either of them. I ended up meeting Mick a couple of weeks later. But I think of watching it live. I think of sitting on my couch as a 20-something 
and watching this thing unfold that even as it was unfolding, you knew you would be talking about for years and years and years before we could imagine what a Zoom was or what a podcast was. You knew that there would be some community discussion of these moments that were unfolding in front of us. It's only those few moments. You know them when they happen. This match has so much riding on it, JR, that the loser may not even stop at the hospital. They may go straight to the morgue. Well, let's uh, hope it isn't that drastic, King, obviously. That's Jim Ross and his partner in the booth, Jerry the King Lawler, setting the stakes for this fight about as high as humanly possible. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest is the Hell in the Cell match. JR, what's, what's he got there? Introducing the participants. First, weighing 287 pounds. He was born Mick Foley on Long Island, New York. His manifestations as Dude Love and Cactus Jack are infamous. But none are more deranged than mankind. His scarred body, he's missing half an ear. Look at this. He says when he gets inside the steel, he will feel at home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Can you imagine what this human being will do to himself? At this point, Foley closes the cell door and looks upward. He throws the steel chair he's holding onto the roof of the cage and starts climbing. Just threw that chair on top of the cage. What is he doing? He's, well, he's, he's climbing. Mankind is climbing the you're, cage. You're supposed to start out inside the cage, isn't he? And yeah, the Undertaker's not even been introduced. What's he doing? Well, he's trying to get up to the top of the cage. Well, I'd see that, but for what? I, well, he's not very logical. I mean, I, he needs therapy. Who knows what he's thinking? God only knows. Of all the things he's lost, I think he misses his mind the most. Uh-oh, here we go. Foley, or mankind as he's known in this moment, climbs up the chain link wall of the cage with what can only be described as a complete and utter lack of grace. I don't know if there's a graceful way to do it, honestly, but if there is, Foley didn't have it. This is Foley in a nutshell, awkward, graceless, and totally unpredictable. Totally willing to do anything to make the best match possible, bodily constraints be damned. When The Undertaker finally comes out, Foley is waiting for him on top of the cage, just like Funk had suggested, just like Foley had imagined. Right before the first gong of The Undertaker's music hits, there's an overhead shot of Foley walking around the roof of the Hell in a Cell, seemingly testing out the viability of the chain link roof panels. Taker interrupts his own entrance by just climbing right up to the roof to meet his opponent. And The Undertaker says, He's doing it! You want me up there? You want to come up there and fight? I'm going to come up and whip your butt. Oh my gosh. No, he may not make it up. Undertaker in a very precarious position. Ooh. Nothing between the Undertaker and the concrete floor, but imagination. He's there. And he's there. And apparently, Hell in the Cell match is officially underway. 
They start brawling precariously atop the cage, and almost immediately, reality interrupts the proceedings. As they stomp across the top of the cell, Undertaker's foot goes through, popping the zip ties that were holding one of the panels, more on that later, and just ripping the chain link panel away from the frame. Whatever the plan was, this was certainly not part of it. The two guys exchange a few more punches, Foley tries unsuccessfully for a suplex, all clearly unwieldy setups for whatever is about to happen next as they inch unsteadily closer to the edge of the cell. Getting close to the edge, I didn't understand why one would get close to the edge if you weren't going to use that emotion in the match. I just didn't think it would be over that quick. So when they were at the edge, you say... They're fighting right above our head, something to that effect, and I don't like it one bit. Undertaker fighting back. He's fighting back. They're right above us, folks, and I don't like it a damn bit. What are you feeling when you say that? Apprehension and fear. I just didn't think that uh, Mick could pull that off, and nor did I think that two veterans like Foley and Taker uh, would attempt such a crazy stunt, but they did, <laughs> and boy, did they. JR was uneasy, I thought. At the beginning, he would what these two are about to do, you know, because he knew it was going to be it was almost like, I don't know what they're going to do, but, you know, it's going to be bad. Like, you know, something bad is going to happen. I thought he was uneasy. I thought there's a moment where he says when they're up on top of the cage, he's like, I, I don't like this a bit. I thought that was just genuine. I mean, it was all the call is entirely genuine, but I think that was a very real moment of a guy looking up at the top of the cage, seeing them up there and go, I, you know, the same way you look. I don't I don't like the looks of this. This is not, nothing good is going to come from this. Then, literally one minute into the match, less time than I've spent describing it by a lot, here's what happens. Undertaker tosses mankind off the roof of the 16-foot-high cage and through the Spanish announce table at ringside and onto the floor. There is, I should say a sort of brutal grace to the fall. Foley is in control of leaving the cage top. Taker is basically miming the toss, leaving everything to Foley as he takes a running leap and pivots in midair to hit the table back first. He lands perfectly, or as perfectly as can be hoped for, and the table gives way under his weight with just enough resistance to break the fall a tiny bit. It all happens so fast. In real time, you couldn't even process what you were seeing. The instant replay, yes, they showed this potential catastrophe on instant replay, was completely necessary to processing what had just transpired. But as fast as it was, right there in that moment, Foley seemed to freeze, just floating in midair, halfway through his spin, arms out on either side of him, his tattered white button-down shirt trailing behind him in the air. And you're asking yourself, what? am I seeing? One has to wonder if Foley was asking himself, what am I doing in that moment? Jerry Lawler yells, oh my God, almost accidentally, as if he's actually watching a terrible accident. Oh my God. Get out here, really. I mean it. 
need some help. That crunch you hear is Foley's body landing. He's now lying on the floor underneath the scraps of the Spanish announce table, totally motionless. The Undertaker is still on top of the cage, stalking around in character more or less, but visibly concerned. When JR and Lawler call for help, they mean it. Even if they had known this was coming, and they didn't, but even if they had, they'd have to be concerned for Foley's life here. Five years ago, the Celtics were uh, among the favorites to win the championship. And on opening night, I remember doing all the interviews you do before things on opening night. You say, listen, this, of course, this could happen, and Golden State and Boston could meet in the finals, but something always happens. There are so many things that are going to happen that we can't imagine. And sometimes, whatever. And five minutes into that season, on opening night on national TV, Gordon Hayward, lands awkwardly and just breaks his ankle in a psycho Sid uh, way that is just Joe Theismann way that is just this gruesome moment that happens in front of you and that everything changes. Everything changes in an instant that you can't possibly be prepared for. I just didn't think it would be over that quick and that Mick would go off the cell and, and land at our feet at the announced position. And, uh, you know, based on how he landed, the sound it made, Mixed moaning, the air knocked out of him, uh, you know, and then falling that far because you can't rehearse that. They didn't do a walkthrough at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was, it was just not in the cards. So I had no preconceived notion that they were going to do anything along these lines. There's just that, you know, two seconds before, you, you know, he and he and Lola both know it's about like, oh my God, they're really going to do this. And then, of course, everybody thought it was over. And I think the thing, you pick up some of the tone, unfortunately, in the moments afterwards, we think it's over because he's landed. You take two seconds to go, what if, what if he misses the announce table by what if six inches one way, six inches the other way, and he's landing basically on ice. And a lot of the tone that you get there from JR and Waller to know that it's as real as real gets is that beyond tragically, we are less than a year away from Owen Hart. And a lot of those moments where everything stopped, you can see some of this, what are we doing here? After the break, we'll meet the man that made the plunge. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mick Foley, Mankind, entered this match as a cartoon villain. A sadistic and masochistic monster whose unconventionality is what made him a viable competitor for an unstoppable force like The Undertaker. Taker was larger than life. Mankind was crazier than life. But the moment he hit the ringside floor, he wasn't mankind anymore. He wasn't a character. Underneath that leather mask he was wearing and the horror movie clothes, he was a human being who had just suffered a terrible, horrific fall. When you see a person go through that, the human element has to come into play. But that human element was also an intrinsic part of the mankind character at that point. He wasn't just mankind, sadistic terror. No, 
Mick Foley was a pro wrestling lifer. He was a diehard fan who once hitchhiked to Madison Square Garden to see Jimmy Superfly Snuka in a steel cage match against magnificent Don Morocco. He drove hours each way to train to be a wrestler when he was in college and started working as a jobber in WWE when he was 19 years old. He wrestled all over, in Oklahoma, in Memphis, in Dallas, in Alabama, all over the Northeast. He wrestled for WCW, for ECW, and in Japan, where he specialized in death matches and got second-degree burns all over his arm in a match that he was paid $300 for. He lost half an ear when he got tied up in the ropes in a match against Vader in WCW and kept going in that match. By the time he got to the WWE, he already had a veteran's resume and the scars to prove it. WWE made him into Mankind, a creepy Undertaker foil. And by necessity, he eventually evolved that role into other roles. He was also Dude Love, delusional hippie hero. And Cactus Jack, wild-eyed tough guy, his character from his pre-WWE days. He played all of these roles at various times in WWE, and he played all three of them in one match in the 1998 Royal Rumble. The idea is that they were the three faces of Foley. That's the phrase they used. Three distinct personalities under the top line of Mick Foley, professional wrestler. It was kind of a postmodern nod. We fans had known him prior to WWE as Cactus Jack, so the role change, one that would have been ignored in previous eras, had been subsumed into the storyline. But this went deeper because Foley himself was the person, the character, at the heart of the three other identities. These weren't Mankind's other identities or Cactus Jack's other identities. Foley was playing a wrestler playing three roles. A lot of wrestlers wrestle under their real names. Foley, to this point, wasn't one of those. He always wrestled under one of those other three names. But his true identity, his personhood, was part of the canon. So when this person risks life and limb in a moment like that, the stakes are oddly higher. Of course, Foley's state after the fall, after he hit the ground, whether he was okay at all, was not just a question for fans, but also for Jim Ross, who, needless to say, is a human being who has feelings, and a bystander to the catastrophe that had just unfolded before him, and a real-life friend of the victim. The most miraculous thing was that Foley survived relatively unscathed. Maybe the next most amazing thing is that Jim Ross was able to keep doing his job after he saw what just happened. So I, I got a responsibility here, so I can't go a rodeo silence. I can't go deaf. I can't hide. We got we to give you something. And the way that that thing played out, David, was the fact that simply that I don't know there's not any better way to say what that match was than what I did because it was natural. It was organic. It was real. And, uh, so I'll always be proud of that work, but I don't know how I could have done it any better. That sounds very egocentric, but I don't know how I could have done it any better than I did on that night live. When Foley hits the floor, Ross utters two of the most amazing sentences in the history of pro wrestling play-by-play, in the history of all sports play-by-play for my money. Good God Almighty, good God Almighty, they killed him. 
the whole bump itself was really, uh, the most extraordinary part of that match. I never called anything like that. I never called anything that, uh, was so real, so dangerous and so unpredicted. It's just, I, ne I never experienced it before, but thank God I had experience. I don't want to say I fell into automatic pilot, but it was kind of there. It all happened so fast. The noise of the arena, of the crowd, is so antic that there's an element of static electricity to the whole thing when you watch it. And for a man yelling, JR sounds almost recessive. And there's a power in that, in the reserve. He's yelling, but not screaming. And he's a second behind, not a second late. No, his call is perfect play-by-play, but a second behind the action, which is how you know he's really responding to it. He really had no idea what was about to happen. Good God almighty, they killed him. As God is my witness, he is broken in half. Incidentally, I always thought he said, with God as my witness. That's the version of the phrase that I know, and I think my memory auto-corrected it. But some people say, as God is my witness, and some people say, as God, as my witness. And idiom and grammar aside, I don't think it even matters here. The oddity makes it better. This was a man trying to explain the inexplicable to the whole world. I didn't pre-think it. Everything I said was spontaneous. Everything I said was what I felt. And there as an entertainer or, a promo or, or as a broadcaster, you just hope that, that what you're hearing and what you're saying fits. That you put the right lyric to the music that these guys are writing and playing. And I think we hit it pretty good on that deal. If JR had known every single thing that was going to happen, well, first of all, there's two things. Number one, it wouldn't have happened because JR was placed high enough in the company. He would have stopped it. Everybody would have stopped it. Even, you know, Mark Calloway, as the legend of the match goes, that Mick begged him for weeks to start on top to, to do that bump. And Mark Calloway said, no, 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 no. Okay, fine. Stop bugging me. We'll do it. And you know, that there's, if JR had known ahead of time, number one, it wouldn't happen. But if he had known ahead of time, he couldn't possibly, I think he would have been, instead of being sort of this raw, nervous about what was going on, I think he would have been almost just angry. He was angry as it was happening. That was clear too, that this great performer and a friend of his, someone he had known forever was taking these risks and was obviously hurt. He was angry about it. But if he had known ahead of time, he couldn't possibly... Good God Almighty! And by the way, the line is: I've seen it on T-shirts, whatever. They say he, you know, he killed him, or whatever. What Jr. says, which is as honest a moment and a beautiful play-by-play -play moment as there is, he says they killed him, and it's almost like the business, all of it. They they finally killed him. I I take that as they finally killed him after all the things this business has taken from him. They killed him. The two lines, of course, back to back are good God almighty. They killed him as God is my witness. He's broken in half. Are you thinking I've got to turn up the volume? I've got to react to this. Or are you just in cruise control? I am reacting. I'm doing that. I'm reacting to what I'm seeing mode. Is it conscious or just innate? I was in the game. Mm -hmm. I saw something special was uh, perhaps about to happen, but I didn't think that it would happen because it's, it made no sense. It's too damn dangerous. You know, why do something this early, this risky and 
but you still got to put a narrative to it. You still got to put a lyric to their music. And that's what it was. You know, they're writing this music on top of a cell, uh, there in Pittsburgh, they just were making something special happen. And so uh, the obligation for me is I got to call some, I got to mm-hmm. put a lyric to their, to their music. They're writing music up there, crazy as it sounds. And it's all, the obligation of the announcers is to provide the lyric to that piece of business. There's a, in the history of play by play, great play by play. We're supposed to be completely neutral and passionless, but you have to be, you have to capture the moment. And one of the famous moments in the history of play by play is Howard Cosell saying, down goes Frazier when George Foreman knocks him out. Down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier. You hear the emotion in his voice. Well, you know what that was? Howard Cosell was the only guy that picked Foreman to win that fight. Everybody else picked Frazier. So down goes Frazier. David wasn't, hey, Joe Frazier's getting knocked out. Down goes Frazier is I told you so. Just as good God, they, they, they've killed him. They've killed him is this crazy business and Mick's mindset and his pursuit of legacy and perfection and moments to be remembered. That's finally killed him. That's what, to me, I take as that call. And it's beautiful. But I didn't know what the hell to expect after what we just saw. What is there left? Jim Ross was frequently emotional in calling his matches. He was no stoic behind the mic. He did the nuts and bolts play calling as well as anyone, but he made his name on Southern Fried excitement and emotional pull in telling the stories that were transpiring in the ring. But that night, during that Hell in a Cell match, he wasn't putting on a show. He was reacting to real shock and real fear and channeling that of the audience at the same time. If he hadn't hit the exact right note, it wouldn't have made any sense. It wouldn't have worked. Nobody could have done what JR did in that moment. Part of what made it so effective was that he was friends with Mick Foley. That he brought Foley into the WWE despite the doubts from many others there, including owner Vince McMahon. And he was also running the talent relations department, meaning he was the point of contact for all of the wrestlers, sort of the general manager of the franchise. Ross wasn't just a narrator. In a way, he was responsible for the whole thing. For the people who don't know, Mick Foley's sort of a Jim Ross guy, right? I mean, he was a guy that you brought into the company, correct? Yeah, I brought both those guys into a certain degree because I got Taker his job, uh, in uh, WCW after my connections with him in WCW, I knew him real well, but Foley was the challenge of getting hired. As the old story goes, you know, Vince says, uh, uh, I'm gonna let you hire him. So you'll know what it's like to have some talent, break your heart that he's doing. He's going to be a disappointment. Vince was in teaching mode. He's teaching JR his new head of talent relations that you can't allow the, uh, I don't know, your loyalties, allegiance. You can't allow that to affect you. And so, and I, I tried not to do that, but I could promise you that in some of those there are aspects and, and sound bites in that call where you could tell I was genuinely concerned for Mick Foley. I had a close relationship with him. I, I had great love for the guy. I still do. How can you not? 
but I was sure worked. So I, I didn't, I just didn't understand how you could get up from that. It's through this lens that everything that Ross says that night must be read. They killed him. Somebody stopped a damn match. Ross was watching his friend suffer, suffer for a job he placed him in right at his feet. And all he could do was express that to the audience. His closeness to the moment, both figuratively and literally, made his call that much more real and that much better. Was there any point where you wanted to get out of your chair and see if he was okay when he's on the floor? Is there anything that you thought you could do as just like a friend? Of course, but I knew I couldn't leave my post. Leaving my post was a bigger detriment than not. I was right next to Mick. If you look back at the the video, he was right there at my feet. Uh, But I didn't want to leave my post, to be honest with you. And I was afraid maybe maybe that's because I was afraid what I, I thought I might see. You called for it. There was a point where you could say, get off your butts and get out of here. Was that real? I was begging for it. Yeah. Because they were in the back. And you don't know if there's a grill position, if they're really watching that intently or not. I don't know. How could I know? But I knew that he needed help. You can't leave a crazy man of his own devices. <laughs> and that's kind of where we were here with Mick. He was just, he was driving his own uh, runaway bus. I think JR, again, the honest moment. You know, going back and watching it, the one thing I put that I underlined is when he said somebody stopped the damn match, that was as real as real as somebody stopped the damn match it was not a play by play call. It was land. Somebody stopped the damn match. And that night in that moment is it's just a human moment. You're just being Jim Ross at that moment. And at some point you've got a microphone in front of you. You're you're captioning everything that's happening, but you've got to experience it as a human being or else. The other human beings watching it are not going to connect to it or relate to it or understand what's happening. We need doctors out here. If somebody can get off their butt in the back and get some people out here. Look at mankind is moving. There's Terry Funk. We come back from the instant replay with Foley stirring on the floor in a presumably very dire state, still halfway obscured by the announce table flotsam on top of him. Terry Funk emerges in a white baseball cap, sweats, and a fanny pack, about as real a state as you could find a wrestler in. He sets to digging Foley out from under the table and checking on him. Immediately, they're surrounded by referees and officials and presumably the medical or training staff. The crowd, who can't see Foley on the floor, just stare up at Undertaker still on top of the cage. And presumably satisfied that Foley isn't, you know, dead, WWE starts airing replays of the fall from numerous angles, over and over. The crowd attending to Foley is soon joined by Sergeant Slaughter, the on-screen commissioner of the company, and Vince McMahon. It's on-screen and, at the time, recently revealed to be real-world owner, and his presence here is glaring. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you might be asking, if Vince McMahon is openly the owner of the company, doesn't it make sense that he's here? Well, kind of. Despite being the owner, McMahon is a heel character a bad guy, and moreover, as a character, he's not really serving a storyline purpose during Hell in a Cell. He's out there, you know, milling about near Foley, but he's barely remarked upon. And the very quietness of his presence, not to mention the look of genuine concern on his face, well, that speaks volumes. Finally, they raise the cage from the ceiling, with The Undertaker still standing on top of it. 
to allow medical personnel to bring a gurney to ringside to take Foley to the hospital. You know, there's stuff I had forgotten that Mick and Terry Funk had had some sort of on-camera breakup or whatever at that point to where JR has to, you know, force in, well, you know, they may not like each other right now, but they're longtime friends. And to the point where, remember, Vince is the biggest heel in the history of heels. And Vince walks out by breaking character completely because this is such a moment. And JR didn't even try to sell that because it's the concern for what's happening. And I, I believe they both thought it was over, as most of us did at that point. And then from that point on, it's just, all right, we have no, if this just happened, who knows what can, what can come next. But I did think we were done. I just didn't see how a human being could take that, that, that fall and you're not sure what it's doing to their anatomy, but you knew it wasn't good for them. Uh, and Mick had been broken up and put back together. And that'd been his style for years and taking those crazy bumps. And with that leaves residual damage. And that's why I didn't think he would be able to continue. I just didn't, I'd never seen that bump before. It was the first time. Well, I didn't know what else to think. I had no, I had no there was no precedent for it for me. Oh, I remember I did that one back in Baton Rouge in, uh, you know, 85 and no, it never happened before. It hasn't happened since. Fans like me will never forget that moment. We'll never forget it because the moment lives on forever in WWE video packages and on YouTube clips and Twitter gifts and in JR's call being used as a voiceover. More on that later. That moment, though, of Foley flying off the cell will live on in WWE history. There's nothing that compares to it, this side of, like, Hogan slamming Andre the Giant. It's a moment that will live forever. As a fan in that moment when he comes off the stage and he comes off the cell, how real did it feel? And how, I mean, was there a part of you that was still, you know, this is happening on TV and pro wrestling. It can't be as bad as it looks. Do you remember what you felt in that moment? All of us have that. I think yeah. all of us have that. And JR at that point, the line he uses there is the line he'd used during WrestleMania about apparently that that was the real a burr in his saddle back then. And if you're hard, if you watch, he would come back a lot to the, oh, somebody's going to say these guys know how to fall, mm -hmm. uh, which he used more than once at that time as a, trying to get the point across that this was a really dangerous moment. I think that, you know, we don't know if you're, it's been a long time fan. You're th you don't know if the announce table was more gimmicked or what it was. Obviously, you know, it was a crazy, spectacular bump that he took. And, you know, he's insane that way. As far as we all care a great deal about our legacy. I have a fantasy one day that my son will be there to see me like inducted into the Hall of Fame. Right. So we all have an idea. We want our legacy to be Mick. Nobody has ever gone farther than Mick <laughs> when it comes to I want my legacy to be this. And, you know, the degree to which he will go. And I think there's the moment when he gets up off this stretcher, you have two things. You have the moment of, okay, you're relieved that he's okay and he, and he did it. And of course you're thinking it, it isn't that it wasn't as bad as it looked or as bad as you thought because he's able to get up, but it wasn't long before you see him struggling to climb back up the cage. His arm is, you know, his shoulder's gone, his arm is dangling. And then I think we all have a way we can watch the watch guys moving to know whether they're they're with her or not. By this point, Mick Foley had already wrestled around the world. He'd been featured in WCW and ECW and headlined numerous WWE shows. He was already a star and in some quarters, a living legend. 
If this match had never happened, he would have still probably found himself a first ballot Hall of Famer. But that fall, that's where Mick Foley's name was written into history. There's no discussion of Mick Foley that doesn't start and end with the fall from the cell. It's in the first paragraph of his obituary when he dies. But the legend of Mick Foley, the moment that really defines him as a person and a character, it's not the fall, not just the fall anyway. It's what happens next. As Jim Ross is on the microphone half-heartedly apologizing for the match being over so quickly, the camera goes to Foley in the aisle and he's climbing off the gurney. Then all of a sudden he's climbing the cage again, which is hard, hard as hell to do. And you know, you got these little things cut into the cage so you could put foot your footsteps. They're still not easy. Still not easy. And you got a guy that's just taking a hell of the biggest bump of his life, and he's known for bumps. So uh it was an interesting night at work, David. I'll promise you that. As an announcer, like how do you how do you reset? You know, how do you turn it back on at a moment like that? Well, you don't have any choice. I mean, that's the job, right? You had to do, you you know, as, as you were saying before, all of us as fans had to recalibrate when he got off the stretcher. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it looked. Maybe all these things. Well, clearly there's a new match happening. The match is restarting. So JR has to go back to where he was before Mick went off the cage in the first place and snap himself back into the moment of delivering the match. And again, that's the beauty of not knowing, not knowing the finishes, not knowing what's going to happen is you can just get back into, you know, into the match and, and what's happened. Jim Ross had just had the play-by-play call of a career and an incident of human drama that no one should ever have to live through. And now he had to go to work again. I'm feeling that I, these, I'm not done with my work yet. I'm feeling that the match is going to continue. And I have no idea what these two uh, guys are going to do, but I knew that it was there was more to the story, simply because Taker was in position to receive Mick at the top of the cell, and that Mick was going to the top of the cell to confront the Undertaker. And so now I'm wondering. See, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's just going to be a, a like a choke slam or something on the cage, which was very flimsy uh, it to begin with. Next week. Part two, where the legend is etched in stone. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian H. Waters, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Story editing by Hacksaw Cal Davenport. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Amar Bad News Burton and fact-checking by Dangerous Daniel Coma. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, AKA The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.